And there's an inference in the, um, in the scripture there of your heart. And that's why the Passion Translation, uh, gives it like this. And I love what he says. Um, um, do you realize that all the wealth of his extravagant kindness is meant to melt your heart and lead you to repentance? So God is constantly, his grace and mercy being extended to the sinner is not because he's accepting what's going on. It's his grace and kindness. And you don't know how he's working within the heart of that sinner to melt his heart. So, and that's, so that's kind of, kind of a cool, cool thing. Um, Dale, would you do me a favor? Would you run out to the book table, you know, where Bill Eldridge sits, and there's a bunch of these passion books, stacks of them. Can you bring those in there? In. Um, okay, so let's keep moving here. I just, I just think that's a really precious verse. I have it underlined because it really shows the heart of God. And uh, we need to really keep in mind the truth of God's heart. Okay, so verse 5. You ready to start moving on? So internal or external? External. Which one's important? Both. Which one's the most important? Internal. Okay, let's listen and see if, if you, you're going to have that, that thought process in a minute over these next verses. Chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. So what you're going to get is according to what you're done. You've done. So that's external. Right? He'll be coming back in a second, and he'll shut that, I think. So that's why I'm letting it be. Um, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. So circle the word done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, see, circle doing good, if you can, seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, circle does, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does, circle does, Good. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile, for, the, for God does not show favoritism. Now, you know, it sounds like he does sound, show favoritism because he keeps saying first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, right? So what he's saying here is that you have to take the, that sentence there, for God does not show favoritism, in light of this whole passage, this chapter and next chapter, where he is going to go on and on about how Jews don't have anything special going on about them, and how Gentiles don't have, everybody sins. Everybody is in the same boat, and God sees everybody the same. Okay? But the reason why he always says Jew first, Gentile, and then to the Gentiles is because, remember, um, so when man's fallen, they're down here. All of mankind, they have the word of God written, their consciences, you know, it's written on their hearts. And so they, they have, and we're going to hear some more stuff about that that's really cool here. Uh, but they have that written in their hearts. So there's, there's already a certain amount of ability for God to have requirements over all mankind. But he singled out a very small sliver of humanity called the Jewish 
people, and he said, okay, I'm going to call you out. You're going to be mine. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you my word. Here's my Ten Commandments. Writes it with a finger here. This is very important. Do this. Um, and then he's going to, in, you know, invoke a covenant with them. And then they're going to enter into circumcision, which is the cutting off of the flesh, the foreskin there, the cutting off of the flesh that was their outward seal. It's called a seal or badge. I'd like you to think of it as a badge. Like, you know, uh, Boy Scouts, they have their, their things they believe, and then, and then they wear their shirt and they have their little badge that says Boy Scout, right? And they have certain behaviors, right? So it's kind of the same. If you can think of it as this whole circumcision thing is like them on the outside, their little badge seal of, yep, see, I am, because that. See? So I want you to think of it in that manner so that then now when we start talking about circumcision, because, I mean, in reality, I'm just going to be very honest with you. 2017, you read Romans. What do I have to do with circumcision? What do I have to do with the law? What is the law? What You know, all these concepts, I'm trying to bring them into a way that actually makes sense to us, okay? So are you good with that? Okay, so, um, so God, anyway, so... When God is dealing with people, especially throughout the Old Testament, it was first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Do you remember when Jesus uh, was in his ministry time? And uh, so here's Jesus, son of God. He knows that he's going to die. And this thing, you know, the whole thing's going to rip wide open after his uh, death and resurrection to all Gentiles and all Jews. You know, that's when, oh man, I need to do a teaching on Acts next. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, prior to that, so during his life, God was after the Jew. Jesus was not sent to the Gentiles. He was sent to the Jews. And do you remember that one time where I think it was a, a woman from Sidonia, I believe. I want to say Sidonia. I might be wrong. It's an S, a country that starts with S. Um, anyway, that woman comes to her, ask, to Jesus, asking to heal, I believe, her daughter or, or a child. And he looks at her and he says, no, you know, I've come to the Jews, not for you, the Gentile. And she says, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the father's table. And he's so blown away with her faith that he goes, okay, you can have a little bit. <laughs> and he, you know, he takes care of it, right? Jesus was sent to the Jews not to the Gentiles. The Gentile time is after his death and resurrection with Peter and Cornelius and all that in the book of Acts. That's when it breaks open for us. So, <laughs> excuse me. So up until that point, God constantly comes to the Jew first, and then he opened it up to the Gentiles. So that's why he says these, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The Jews have a longer standing responsibility for the word and for the law than we do. Theirs was hundreds and hundreds of years, but ours is not. So first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, okay? So let's go, um, let's keep going here. And this is where it starts talking a little bit about how does God, okay, did you ever, here I say, let's get going, y'all look down at your Bible, and then I go on another rabbit trail. How's that sound? Um, but ha have you ever wondered, so what is the deal, God, about all, you know, all the people who were born and didn't know about you and died? That's not fair. Is that fair? What are you going to do with them? You know, have you ever wondered? Nobody's wondered? I always wondered. I'm like, man, <laughs> what? Really? Okay, well, here, let me, let me break this out, break this out for you, okay? Because remember last week I, I told you that there's that natural theology 
it's a it's a it's a known thing for theologians or whatever. But there's this thing called natural theology. It's got two premises, and in Romans chapter 1, it makes it very, very clear that creation and everything that you see proclaims God, and you have no excuse. If you look, if you, you know, I, and I gave you a whole bunch of information about scientists and all of that kind of stuff, remember, and how they, they can't deny God as they're learning stuff like this. So creation screams God, and then right here. This is the second part of natural theology. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. So in other words, people who were not given the law, they're going to perish apart from the law. In other words, the law is not going to judge them. If you're given the law, the law will judge you. But the people who did not get the law, that don't know the law, the pygmy tribes in Africa did not have the law. But they had their conscience. God's inscribed in their hearts. So let's keep going. Those who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Now, I want you to hear something here. There's two words here, and I don't want to get too technical, but I kind of liked this one. Did you hear the difference between perish and judged? So let me read it again. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. So those are people who are non-Jew. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. This is actually genius. And I read quite a bit about this verse. Remember, what are the, what's the audience that God, uh, that uh, Paul is speaking to in Roman, Rome? Jews and Gentiles. It's pretty much half and half. And it's, it's pretty, pretty, you know, you got, you got your Jew sitting there that's been a Jew forever. I mean, thousands of years. And they're, they're so holy and they're so this and so that. And then you got the heathen pagan Gentile sitting there who's come in from, you know, serving thousands, hundreds of gods and, and all sorts of things. So you got these two different, um, we might need that back door shut, surely. So we've got these two different divergent things and they're looking, they're probably, they probably sat on two sides of the aisle, right? <laughs> because Jews weren't supposed to touch Gentile. I mean, this whole thing is just, absolutely crazy that we've got a little church here that has the two of them together. Never have these two ever come together. And we have a church now, a little church right here. So you guys are the Jews, you guys are the, you guys are the Gentiles, right? So he says here that all who uh, uh, sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. Perish actually is a um, word that, um, I knew that was going to go off. and I, My son calling me. Um, perish is a word that is a pagan word. It's very common in pagan religion that you would perish. And it means that kind of like the devil, you know, I mean, the gods were just going to come down and smite you. And so perishing was a, a common thought process to the Gentile, to the pagan. So he says, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. He's speaking their language. Remember, he is so... Paul is so perfectly poised to, to be able to speak to both sides of the aisle, right? So the word perish is a pagan word. And all who sin under the law, under the law, so those will be Jews, will be judged by the law. Judge is a word that's used in scripture, in Jewish scripture. They're used to being judged. That is a word that is definitely a Jewish word. So what he's doing is he's taught, if he would have con- Confuse those two, 
then they wouldn't have understood. They would have been confused, and it would have opened up some some difficulty between them. And if he would only used one word, the same word for both of them, but what he did was he was calling this side and this side, and he was bringing it together. It's kind of cool. I don't know if you care, but I thought it was cool. Um, for it is not those who hear the law that are who are righteous in God's sight. Now, remember, in the Jewish culture, they are reciting and hearing the law constantly, daily, absolutely daily. It's being read, read and recited. All who hear the law, who are right, uh, it's not all those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, in other words, follow their conscience properly, they are a law for themselves. So that kind of becomes, their conscience becomes rules and regulations, customs of God that are put inside them. Even though they do not have the law, they don't have it written, they have it in their hearts. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing and now defending them. This will take place on the day God judges men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So what he's saying here is that um, he's, he's gathering all people together, and he's answering here the fact that every person on the planet since creation with God's laws written on their hearts has their conscience that is their, their guide. And if they live to break their conscience... It's the same as you having the Bible and living and breaking the Bible's rules. Does that make sense? So now God has a way of judging them in a fair and kind way, just like he has for judging us in a fair and kind way because we have his word. So what do you think of that? Okay, so um, moving on. Hopefully I can remember everything I was supposed to. Uh, verse 17. Now if you call... Okay, so now we're going to go into this diatribe against uh, the Jews. Uh, because really the Jewish population in his church are the hard-headed ones. See, they think they're cool. They think they've got it made. They've got the law. They've got circumcision. They've got their badge. They're, they're wearing their badge. And they've got their book. And they were picked out. And they're, they, they've got it going on. And so they have become what, uh, very, very specifically, they now rely on the outside, on the external. But they have forsaken the internal. But it's very, very hard to break pride. If you think you're the chosen one, if you think it's, and it's, it's very hard. And so Paul's gonna go after him right now and just, just get him. Because, and he's going to try to, he's going to spend a lot of time talking to the Jews because they're the hard-headed ones, they're the prideful ones, okay? So, um, you ready for the, go for a ride here with Paul against the Jews, trying to bring them back, you know, slap them around here. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in the darkness, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you teach yourself? Do you preach against stealing, but do you steal? You, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So what he's doing is he's just kind of reading them the, the riot act as, as you kind of go down through there. And now as we read this, I want you all to now put yourself in the place of the Jew. Remember, I kind of alluded to that on Sunday, is that, or maybe last Sunday, I can't remember, is that, you know, Jews, the Jews were the called out people. The Jews were God's, God's people. He, they were the ones he set apart during the Old Testament. Now guess who's his called out people? You, the church. Do you know what ekklesia, the, the Greek word for church, means the called out ones? That's who you are. And you have God's law. And your um, hearts have been circumcised. So this is a call even to us to watch for our pride for external things. Because here's the deal with the internal and external. Everybody can see the external, but they can't see your internal. They can't see where your heart's at. And so we have gotten very, very good. See, to, to engage God in our heart is hard work. Kind of. It's hard work because we can't do anything to do it other than to engage him. It's a work of faith. It's actually easier to engage our internal heart and get our, in, our internal heart aligned with God than to do all the, the rules and regula- regulations on the outside. It's actually easier, but it's, it's what we avoid the most. Because it requires us to lay down our pride. It requires us to take a little bit of time. It requires us to face ourselves and what's on the internal. It requires us to look at him and have some faith in him and believe in him. It requires us to lay ourselves down and stop working and trying and begin to just be with him which you would think would be the easiest thing on the planet. But it ends up being the hardest thing for us to do. And that we tend to then, since we, uh, you know, that heart engagement, remember I talked on Sunday about um, things get in our heart. Our heart is this vital, alive, just pulsating, always just living, breathing. You know, it's like our, our own breath. And if we stop breathing for just, you know, 60 seconds, we pass out. It's not like we can breathe for a little bit and then stop and go do something else. No, we have to breathe all the time. And it's that way with our spirit, with God. We have to be living and breathing with him in our heart at all times. God's, you know, Paul says, pray without ceasing, always engaging, always knowing that our heart is right there. And that, you know, we preach this a lot. Even when you're, you know, you're driving up, you're, you're engaged, you know, because you, you know that you're, you just have to have this awareness. So the, this heart thing. And, and, you know, if we sin or we do something or, or maybe God doesn't do something we expect him to do or something happens, you know, this little, little part of our heart right here can, can have a little, little disappointment or a little discouragement or a little this or a little that or something like and wherever those spots are then that kind of it it kind of starts to harden right there you know and so our heart starts to kind of but and so when when the heart kind of gets kind of be a little little uncomfortable a little difficult a little bit not quite eh, then you know what we do we disengage in our heart and we engage on the externals well i can be good 
right? I can do things. I can not have an affair. I can not get drunk. I can not, what? Speed. <laughs> I can not yell. I, you know what I mean? I can be really good and I can feed the poor and I can give and I can do this. And, and then, see, we, we start relying out here. We rely out here. So we can become this very easily. But all the while, while I'm sharing this with you, please remember what I read at the beginning. How are we going to be judged? How is God going to, what is he going to do at the end of the age? At a, the end of, he's going to look at our deeds as well. So in this teaching, we can't dump deeds. We just have to get them in the right order. We have to get them in the right place. We're not relying on them to be loved. We're not relying. That is not relationship. It flows out of relationship, and Paul's going to take us there, okay? So as we're reading through, I want you to hear the word Jew, but say you in in it. (laughs) Now you call yourself a you. You rely on the law. You rely on what you know to do, and you brag about your relationship to God. You know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed. You have knowledge. If you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in uh, in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, then you have, and you have the word of God, the law, in embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, do you teach yourself? Do you preach against stealing, and then do you steal? Do you say to people who commit adultery, don't commit adultery, and then do you commit adultery? Do you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Do you brag about what you know, but then do you dishonor God by breaking the laws that you know? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed, among, and I'm not going to say Gentiles there, I'm just going to say the world, because of you. Kind of harsh. Okay, but let's keep moving. Circumcision. What is circumcision? An out, out, external, woo, look at me. Don't look. Circumcision has a value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, what is law? Remind me what law. I'm hearing the word law a lot. What is law? God's way of living, God's ways, God's ways. So in the Jewish culture, there was three kinds of law. There was moral law, there was civic law, and there was ceremonial laws. So when when Moses went up on the mountain, he got the Ten Commandments on the tablet. And then God gave him other a bunch of other laws, and it's written in Leviticus. So and and Deuteronomy and it's kind of smattered all around. So some of the laws are um, ceremonial. When you are, when you sin, you have to take a completely uh, perfect lamb, and you have to cut it off a certain way. And you have to slit his neck, and you got to and then you put your you know in different ones you have to take the blood and put it on the tip of your thumb and your big toe and your ear. You know, I mean, this is this is what they it, it says, okay, or. Um, if, you know, there's all this ceremonial stuff, okay? Now, remember in AD 70, I told you that the temple fell and um, 
Titus came into the temple and the temple was destroyed and there has not been any sacrifice since. So since that time, all ceremonial law has been suspended. So when you read the Old Testament and you read about the ceremonial law, it's suspended now. It is not happening. It is not, you are not required ceremonial law other than God's, Jesus' fulfillment of some of that. You know, you participate through Jesus, but you don't have to do that. And then there's the, um, what did I say, ceremonial, civic, and moral. Okay, so the civic laws were in, in the Jewish con, uh, construct, uh, if, if your, if my cow goes into your lawn or out in your garden and tramples down, this is one of them, tramples wheat, then I have to give you that cow, I can't remember what it exactly says, I'm just making it up now, but the situation is real. You have to, I have to give you that cow plus three more cows. So that we are even. If, if your cow comes to my side and falls in a hole and breaks its leg, it's my fault for having the hole, your fault for the cow, you know, so that he, he talks a lot about that kind of thing. So that's their civic, okay? And there's other civic kind of laws that actually our laws are patterned after. So a lot of our forefathers in those first, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And it was very, very clear. He had a lot, of, and he, they lined out a lot of very specific things. And then there's the moral law, the um, don't lie, don't steal, don't be jealous, all of that kind of thing. The moral law continues because that's God's heart. Okay? Does that make sense? Kind of help you understand. But once again, let's keep in mind, and, and a lot of the, the commentaries that I read, a lot of the stuff that I'm hearing, you know, and... And they say, they make a pretty broad statement. They say that basically every word that comes out of God's mouth is his law. It's his culture. It's his custom. And so a lot of times in the Bible, when God spoke, he would actually give directions, directives along with that. And that would be considered part of his law, part of his way. So when when we're talking about law, we have to make sure that we understand it from the Jewish standpoint, but we also understand it from the Jewish standpoint. I like that. Do you get what I'm saying? Okay. A little bit of... Okay, so circumcision. Circumcision has value. So your badge... I wish we... Christians don't have badges, do we? We don't have a badge. The Jews did. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? So in other words, if you, if you do everything that's right and you're, you're not circumcised, you're not a Jew, you're not one of them, but you're doing God's heart, you are as if you were circumcised. Does that make sense? You should be wearing a badge, but anyway. The one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. So this is where I kind of honed in on Sunday, and these are very precious verses right here. A man is not a Jew or a Christian or one of God's beloved if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. 
No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code, such as man's praise is not from men. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. So just very quickly on this, a note on this, on the flesh cutting off of, um, and he, they become kind of, it becomes kind of a, a, um, trophy. I don't know what the word would, you know, a mark against sexual immorality because quite often sexual immorality would be the first thing that they would enter into when they would fall, their hearts would disengage from God. Um, and sexual immorality is the first thing that Paul addresses in, ver- in chapter 1, if you remember that. So it's, it's very, you know, why didn't God have, us, have them cut off their earlobe? It's kind of extra flesh, right? Or something else. But, but what it does is it, it was a mark that said if we're doing anything outside of God's command sexually, that we have, you know, we have departed. So that's that's kind of what that's all about. But it also can be <clears throat> expanded out just in the cutting off of the flesh. And the flesh is <clears throat> oh, the flesh is um, uh, represented in everything that our body wants to do that it shouldn't do. Okay, so let's keep moving on. So now he's going to go back to them Jews. He's going to keep going. What advantage is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God, which is something I've already kind of showed you. What if some did not have faith? Well, okay, so then he kind of goes on this little sidetrack thing. Did I lose you? Chapter 3, verse 1. So from chapter 3, verse 3, down um, to 9, he kind of goes on a rampage. And it's kind of an off-track thing. And a lot of the commentators kind of talk about it in that they really feel like he kind of, he was on a good track. You know, he was on, his mind was going one way, and, and they feel like, um, and they feel like he kind of, averted it for a moment because he remembered something that was going on. This is what a lot of the commentators say in the church in general. So he wanted to address it. You know how you kind of go on a rabbit trail or whatever. So kind of make a little line in your Bible, maybe draw from uh, verse 3. Wait, sometimes I write verse, is it verse 5? But our righteousness brings, um, no, actually starting in verse 3, sorry. Starting in verse, I have, my Bible is so marked up, sometimes I write over the little verses and then I can't see where I'm at. So starting from verse 3 down to verse 8, through verse 8, that's this little kind of sidetracked kind of thing that he's dealing with specific arguments that he's hearing out of the churches. Okay? So they're gonna kind of sound kind of funky because you know, where is this coming from? It doesn't sound like, you know, it's not logically, he doesn't follow it through logically like he usually does with all of his writing. So they are saying that these are some arguments that come out, or that, that's been circulated in the churches. So I'm just going to read through them, okay? So you kind of hear. Um, what, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may provoke, be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. 
But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what then shall we say? Here's our second little question, and it's a second little issue that's prevalent in the church back then. More clearly, what should we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Some might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are all being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. So do you kind of hear this little little sidetrack that he takes right there? And he's like, hey, you know, I've been hearing you guys say this. I've been hearing this going on. So, so there. And he gives it, you know, one liner to kind of shut it down. And then he'll bring up another issue and then one liner to shut it down. So, so that's kind of, cause that little section there seems like it's out of place, but that's what that's all about. Okay. Cool. Moving on. Verse nine. Let me make sure I'm following along over here. How many, do you guys remember last, from last week, uh, how many Old Testament verses are quoted or, um, 84? Yeah. 84 times Paul in, in the 16 chapters of Romans is going to either quote or refer to the Old Testament. So, um, we've just read through a couple of them actually, and we're going to hit some more here as we go. So, uh, verse nine. What should we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. As it is written, and here's another Old Testament um, verse, and I, I'll let you know where this one comes in. It's found in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. I could be giving you all these um, verse, you know, the places where he's taken them out of, but I won't to bore you, save you from boredom. So let's let's uh, quickly read through that because we got to get down to the good stuff here. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouth Mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's an indictment, absolute indictment. Terrible, horrible. And remember, he's including all men in that. So he's grabbed the Jews by the nap of the neck and said, you are nothing because you are circumcised and because you carry around a big Bible. You are nothing. That doesn't make you anything because these over here that don't have those things that are living according to the rules in their hearts are going to judge you. And then he's reaching into the other side, the, the pagan side and saying, you know, this is how you're living, especially in chapter one. You need, you need a savior, right? So he's brought them all together finally. And, um, and he can make that indictment that all what he's going to do. Have you, have you ever heard of Romans 3.23? What's the, what's the verse? How many have sinned? How big is the word all? Everyone. So he has just taken all this time to set this up so that there's nobody that can go, um, yeah, but what about, right? Nobody at this point. We're all like slain under the, the issue of sin. 
at this point. I have... Um, I have a really fun quote here, um, and I can't find it. Don't you love it when you do that? But it just says that basically we have to be brought to this point before we can go, oh, um, the, the strong argument of the universality of man's guilt and condemnation of the whole wide world, um, when these humiliating conclusions are finally accepted and felt, then we can accept and appreciate what grace is. And um, also, uh, I have this quote out of C.S. Lewis, uh, the book Problem of Pain. Anybody ever read that book? It's a good book. It's it's thick and heavy. I mean, sometimes I'm like a a pro, you know a paragraph. I'm like, I got to go to sleep now. But um, he this is uh, the opening chapter of his fourth uh, the fourth chapter of um, C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain, which is a really good book. It talks a lot about why is there pain in this world, and how can a loving God allow pain, and what is the work of pain in our world and suffering. And it's, a, it's just an amazing book. So it says here, The examples given in the last chapter went to show that love may cause pain to its objects, but only on the supposition that that object needs alteration to become fully lovable. So we've just sat under two and a half chapters of learning how horrible we are. Right? Right? Okay. So the examples given in the last chapter went to show that love may cause pain to its object, but only on the uh, supposition that that object needs alteration to become fully lovable. And what he, what C.S. Lewis, his, one of his, um, ideas, you know, he kind of brought out the fact that when you get a puppy, you love your puppy, right? But if you let your puppy be a puppy, no one will love your puppy, including you after a little while, right? Has anybody ever had a puppy? Did you love the puppy at first? Did you start not loving the puppy? So what did you have to do to the puppy to make him more lovable? And what does training mean? Smack it once in a while? Cause it pain. Cause it pain. Is that, and that puppy could look at you and say, you are so mean. You really aren't. How could a loving master do this to me? You tell me all the time you love me. But how come you smack me? You know, how come? I don't know. I've never trained a puppy. It's probably not right to smack a puppy. What's the right thing? What? Put him in the kennel. Time out. You put a to- dog in time out. <laughs> and they and they agree. Do they sit there? They probably do. Sounds like my parenting classes. No attention. Okay, so you do train them. They get it. Okay. Well, it works. Well, so let me finish reading this. Um, only on the supposition that the object needs alteration to become fully lovable. Now, why do we men need so much alteration? The Christian answer, that we have used our free will to become very, very bad. 
and it is so well known that it hardly needs to be stated. But to bring this doctrine to real life in the minds of modern men and even to modern Christians is very hard. When the apostles preached, they could assume that their pagan hearers had a real consciousness of deserving of the deserving of divine anger because their gods were always angry at them. The pagan mysteries existed to allay this consciousness, and the Epicurean philosophy claimed to deliver men from the fear of eternal punishment. It was against this background that the gospel appeared as good news. Because to the pagan, they could never find a loving God. So the gospel really truly was good news. It brought news of possible healing to men who knew that they were mortally ill. But all this has changed. Christianity now has to preach the diagnosis in itself very bad news before it can win a hearing for the cure. Kind of interesting. We even sometimes have to come to the realization of our utter sinfulness, our utter utter inability to live perfectly. Amen? I know that's kind of hard. Um, so let's let's keep moving here. Let me get caught up with the passion because there's some good stuff in here. Okay, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So that's basically in a nutshell of what I'm trying to say. Paul has worked for two, almost three chapters now to silence every mouth of any kind of righteousness in and of ourselves. Verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become very conscious of sin. So why did God give the law? Why did he give us the rules, the regulations, the external? There's a couple of different uh, teachings and different different reasons. But I'm going to say to you that the law was given so that we would become very it would become very apparent how much we need a savior, basically. Um, C.S. Lewis had another kind of little section in his thing, and I'll just give it to you in a paraphrase because I thought it was kind of funny, that a man could be sitting in a chair, and you could walk into the room, and, and he's a complete stranger, and you could look at him, and you would assume all sorts of things because he's sitting there, and he seems to have all his faculties, and his, he has two legs and two arms, and, and, and he seems fine. But until you ask that man to get up and do something, like, walk over and pick something up, can you truly discover that he is actually uh, cerebral palsy? You know, he's, he's actually, um, well, he called him incredibly clumsy is the word he would use. So as long as he was sitting there, he looked perfectly fine. But as soon as something is asked of him, it became very apparent. One time, I'm thinking of another way to bring this out. Uh, in high school, one of my girlfriends and I decided that we were going to be ballerinas that we wanted to take ballet. We had never had a minute of dance in our life. So we sign up for the class, and we put, we go to the store, we buy the best dance outfits ever. And we are looking so good. And we show up for the class, right? 
And we walk in, and we look like every other ballerina in there. You know, they've all been taken for years. They're all high school students, and I don't know why they put us in this class. And so we're all lining up, and her and I are just kind of looking at each other. So they say, you know, go to that. You know, we do our stretches, you know, and we go to the corner, and they say, you know, the teacher says, okay, now I want to see, you know, this is our first class of the year. I want to see you all do it. And she named off like eight things that we were supposed to do. And so the per- first one goes flouncing past, and everything was fine, and that was my turn. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it became very, very apparent. Until that, up until that point, I looked pretty good. But as soon as something was asked of me, then all of a sudden my failings became very apparent. And that's what the law does. The law, we can all look really good until we have a law. We, we can be fine but until we are told to not envy. But then as soon as we are told that envy is bad, what do you end up doing? Envy everything. I want, Barbara, I want your glasses. I want your shirt. I kind of like your top. I want your purse, right? So that's what the law does. The law in its original state was supposed to help us stay flush with his community in his culture But when we left and fell, now it's there forever reminding us of our lack and how we can't anymore. Okay? So now God finds us in this situation where we are carrying a very heavy burden of external demands, um, expectations that we know need to be done and we can't fulfill them. We just can't. So now we get to verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, and because of his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith. So I'm going to read that out of the uh, Passion, if I may, because I really like this out of the Passion. So verse 20 out of the Passion, For by the merit of observing the law, no one earns the status of being declared righteous by God before God, for it is the law that fully exposes and unmasks the reality of sin. But now, so here's verse 21, but now, so just listen to me, because I don't think any of you guys have the Passion. I just want you to hear it. I'm going to read it kind of slowly. I want you to kind of let it sink in. So remember, actually, before I read it, I want you to remember my Sunday sermon illustration. So here we are, down here, trying to function in this outer shell of this harsh taskmaster, this framework that is too hard for us to bear, and we constantly fail. Therefore, we are these these human beings that are bearing guilt and shame for what we do wrong, but we can't make it right. We can't keep doing things to get better or anything like that. And God sent his own son, his own son, into that. Jesus was born 
and lived for 33 years, and he completely fulfilled the law. He never once broke it, not once. It's very hard to believe, but he never once. He is the only human being, and he was fully man in his manhood and in his godhood altogether, but in his manhood he did not sin. He never once sinned. So then, since the wages of sin is death, and all of us have sinned, therefore death came into the human race. Do you remember back in Genesis? It says, and you can read this because you might not remember or whatever, but they were not, they were, they could eat of any other tree in the garden, right? Except for the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they were eating of the tree of life all through this dispensation before they sinned. They were eating of the tree of life. So they were constantly being renewed in their body. So in reality, that original state, there was no death. They were going to live eternally. They were eating of the tree of life. There had not been any sin and there was no death. They were eating of that tree of life. So, But when they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and now they have a knowledge of evil, now they know what it's like to, to rebel, God could not, now death enters in. How did death enter in? Did they die right then? They were cast out of the garden. They could no longer eat of the tree of life. So now their bodies begin to decay. And it's actually thought, a lot of the commentaries, uh, commentators have said that, you know, all of creation was eating of that tree. Even the animals and what, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's all kind of weird and out there. But there was no death. So how would any biological creation live without eating of the tree of life? Kind of interesting. So now they're outside of that and there is now death. So all of mankind is finite now. We have to die because we all sin. We're all a part of that Adam that reached out, you know what I mean? So now we have Jesus that comes down and fulfills the law. So there's no call on him to die. None. He does not have to die. He hasn't done any sin. So I know this is a tweak in your brain. A little bit, you're all kind of like. (laughs) So when he willingly, the Bible says he willingly died. He chose to die. He chose to. He said, okay, I'm not supposed to. I don't need to. It's not called upon me to do this. But I'm going to do this for you. I am going to lay my life down. And so he allows himself to be crucified. So he enters into death in a perfect situation. And therefore, death couldn't hold him. So therefore, when he died, and he goes into Sheol, and he, he, you know, the Bible says all sorts of crazy things that was happening during that time. And now there's the, you know, the renting of the curtain in the Holy of Holies, and there's this, the separation between God and man is now absolutely, you know, destroyed, and, and it's open. Do you guys all remember that part of the, the curtain being rent? 
now things, something happened. This is our Jesus. This is, this is perfection that, that didn't have to die, went to the cross. Is this, is this old news to you or is this new stuff? Kind of a little bit of new, kind of interesting way of looking at it. So, yes? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Good. I love it. Immortality. Exactly. So now, Jesus, he's down here, and, and God says, okay, listen, put yourself in Jesus. Put yourself in my son. You are in Christ. You, and we're going to read more and more about this. It's going to start coming out more in Romans. Uh, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but he's going to say, you no longer live now, but Christ lives in you. And we're going to talk about putting to death everything and, and just all of that. But Jesus, so Jesus, I, you, it's so good. So Jesus dies and death couldn't hold him. And in his resurrection, the Bible is going to say here, that well, in actually Romans one, if you remember, he was fully man out of the lineage of David, but he was fully God because of the power of the resurrection. He death could not hold him. There was nothing in death that said you belong here because he didn't belong there. So when he went there, he brought forth. You know, there's a lot there that I don't even understand, and he rose from the dead. And then he, he ascended. Okay, so let me read this out of um, the Passion Translation. But now, independently of the law, the righteousness of God, and, and the word righteousness is kind of a big, thick, gobbledygook word that can get kind of confusing. I just want you to say rightness. Rightness. God is right. And his rightness so I'm not going to say righteousness because that just kind of sounds funny. But just does that make bring a little clarity? Just say rightness. Um, the rightness of God is tangible and brought to light through Jesus, the anointed one. This is the right, rightness that the scriptures prophesied would come. It is God's rightness made visible through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I want you to underline that, that verse because that's a, a very critical one. It is God's rightness or righteousness made visible through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. What does the word faithfulness mean? Long-suffering? It, it's gonna, it's gonna come out. I know, I know more than you right now, because, well, you could, you know, so this is not a trick. Thank you for being brave. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Because so, what I'm after though is faithfulness means obedience. Okay, and we're going to hear that word starting to come out, and it's going to just blow your mind. So keep coming, <laughs> because we're not going to get there tonight. Oh, you know what? You're right. The way they have this broken out, it says verse 21 and 22. So, the the sentence that says it is God's rightness made visible through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But if you don't have that, if that, just, just underline the whole thing, okay? <laughs> and now all who believe in him receive that gift. For there is really no difference between us, for we have all sinned and are in need of the glory of God. Yet through his powerful declaration of acquittal, God freely gives away his rightness, his righteousness. 
His gift of love and favor now cascades over us, all because Jesus, the anointed one, has liberated us from the guilt and the punishment and the power of sin. Jesus, God, Jesus' God-given destiny was to be the sacrifice to take away sins, and now he is our mercy seat, and I could do a whole teaching on the mercy seat, because of his death on the cross. We come to him for mercy, for God has made a provision for us to be forgiven by faith in the sacred blood of Jesus. This is the perfect demonstration of God's justice, because until now, he has been so patient, holding back his justice out of his tolerance for us. So he covered over the sins of those who lived prior to Jesus' sacrifice, and when the season of tolerance came to an end, There was only one possible way for God to give way to his righteousness and give give away his righteousness and still be true to both his justice and his mercy. To offer up his own son. So let's think about this for a little bit. So there was a season of tolerance, of patience, of mercy coming up to when Jesus came to this earth. And there was only one possible way for God to give away his righteousness and still be true to both his justice and his mercy. What is, what, what was calling on God's justice? Yeah. So the, all the evil, everything that we've talked about, how, how sinful we are, it requires justice. And if God wasn't a just God, he would not be a loving God. Yes? God has to be just if he is love. So, and if there's that much sin, we got to do something about it. So either wrath is going to come out against that sin and devour, you know, those of us who are in the way. You know, he's, 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 you know what I'm saying? So what does the Bible say he put on Jesus when Jesus went to the cross? The sins of the world. The perfect, the one who was perfect and never had sinned, followed every single rule and regulation, abided by all of it. God was able to heap upon him everything that you've done. And he was the perfect, perfect, perfect lamb to offer up his own son. So now, because we stand in the faithfulness of Jesus or the obedience of Jesus because of our disobedience, God declares us right. Then is room for boasting. Do our works bring God's acceptance? Not at all. It was not our works of keeping the law, but our faith in his finished work that makes us right with God. So our conclusion is this. God's wonderful declaration that we are righteous in his eyes can only come when we put our faith in Christ and not in keeping the law. Let me read that um, out of the NIV, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So, all of this, Paul takes so much time setting us up to know how sinful we are and how nothing on the outside can save us and how only the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his perfect, 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 perfect sacrifice can lead us out 
of our punishment and our guilt and our shame. And that the internal is ever so important. And I'm going to talk some more this Sunday about that. And it's going to be, it's going to be really fun. But he leaves us hanging here with this last line. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? So in other words, so all I got to do is believe in Jesus and everything's fine, right? I don't have to do the outer because remember, it's nothing. All that can't save me. It can't fix me. And he he says with an exclamation point, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. We uphold the rules. We, We uphold the external expectations that God has on us. In other words, nope, you know, you're not getting out of this one. We're going to bring the external back in, but it's going to come back in in the right way, in the right manner, so that it's not a heavy burden. The Bible says, Jesus says, what does he say? My burden is, yep, and my yoke, my yoke is easy, and my, I knew that was wrong. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So we're going to come back to external deeds. Because they are, remember we read in um, chapter one there about how we're going to be judged by them. And that's how we're going, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, God's, because God's going to be looking at our deeds. Remember we read that. So it's very, very important. But we're going to get him in the right order. We're going to get him in the right place. Okay? So I can't go on any farther because that's for Sunday. And But I will tell you that, that Paul leaves it hanging right there. And he's going to pick it up later. So, that is Romans. I was going to read to you some more stuff. Some more, um, but I can't find them. You know, I never have them when I want them. They were there this morning. Anybody have any thoughts? What are you thinking right now? What has hit you in the head? Exactly. But now, how would you say that to some uh, Christians who are not, who are doing great free will choices, but they're being slaughtered for their faith? That's pain, too. That's suffering. Paul talks a lot about suffering and pain. Correct. Correct. But, and it's very true. Absolutely, what you say is absolutely true. And I think we can all understand pain that comes our way when it's our fault. But it's when it's not our fault that pain becomes very confusing to the Christian. And suffering becomes very confusing to the Christian. And there's a, there's a lot of passages that talk about, and we're going to hear some pretty soon here in, in Romans, where Paul always starts with, and that suffering produces patience, and patience produces da-da-da-da-da. And then at the end, and then you'll be fully made like, you know, complete. But it starts with suffering. So pain, suffering, um, kind of an interesting thing because we have this thing, especially in the faith movement, that all pain is bad and no pain is good. But in reality, there's a lot of pain that's actually really good. And the book, Problem with Pain, really proves that out. C.S. Lewis has just an incredible way of just, you know. Sorry? No gain. There you go. No pain, no gain. What else are you thinking? Did, think of what else kind of jumped out in your head while we were talking.